Hi, good evening, everyone. This is Laurel Hightower with Ink Heist. Uh, tonight, I am joined, as always, by Rich Duncan and Shane Douglas Keene, and we have the privilege this evening of speaking with Alma Katsu. Alma, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much. I don't know if this is a privilege or not. Thanks for, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, I really need some company. It's oh, no certainly, <laughs> It's certainly a privilege for us. I don't know how much of a privilege it is for you. Oh, don't say that. And um, before I go too far down the road of it, let me know if that is how you prefer your name to be pronounced or if I'm messing up vowels anywhere in there. You know, I it, it's such a weird name and growing up with a weird name and my maiden name is even a little weirder than my married name that I just kind of learned to not care how anybody pronounces it. <laughs> <laughs> that probably saves time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, we usually start things off by doing kind of a, a new kid at school rundown of, um, you know, your, your writing career and what you got going on and, and uh, whatever else you want to share. Oh, okay. So the book that just came out, The Deep is my fifth novel. I find that really hard to believe that it's been almost 10 years that I've been um, published. Uh, it's one of those things that I had wanted all my life, but I got started late in publishing because I had another career first. So my first, I sold my first book at 50. So that tells you how old I am. And um, <laughs> they've That's all been... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that's that's really that's really great. That's awesome to be, you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> to have that second career late in life. I'm like a poster child for late starters. So um, <laughs> uh, they've all been historical in some way and had some kind of supernatural element to them. But the last two have been more of a type, I guess, the, the hunger and the deep, both sort of reimaginings of historical events and adding this sort of um, horror twist to them. That's awesome. That's, yeah. that's really great. Yeah. Cause I've, I've read the hunger um, as well. So I know that was, uh, that was the Donner party. Right. Um, yeah. That, that was, I, I loved that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The two books are similar, but the more I think about it, like different in, in just certain ways, I thought felt like the hunger was maybe, and you know, so they both are reflective of the events, you know, that, that they're about. So the hunger was maybe a little bit more um, primitive, a little more um, elemental. I felt in a way, maybe a little bit more of the horror element where the deep, because it's about the Titanic, um, and, you know, was set in the Edwardian era, maybe is a little bit more romantic, a little softer in some ways. I'm, I'm always interested to hear what, what readers think, though. I find it to be utterly mystical. I'm mesmerized by it. It's kind of hard for me to say, how do I feel? Is it a little more romantic? Maybe so. But for me, it's just really, really engaging to me it's really it's haunting well thank you so much that's what i hope for you know i wanted a gothic book which seems also kind of reflective of the edwardian era but i find you know as much as i love gothic it's i feel like it's hard to do well that you know it went through a very popular time and it ended up being it's kind of cliche in some ways and and so i was really hoping that i could capture that feeling and a lot of the aspects of Gothic with, without, without being too stereotypical. 
I think one of the very first things I said to Laurel and Rich about this book was yeah. that it had a very gothic feel to it. Oh, wonderful. So, so you pulled that off. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can die happy now. <laughs> well, I, I definitely agree. And I think it's one of those that's we've been messaging about it some, too, because, in, you know, the the I picked up the hunger like right before I kind of had plunged into this whole horror community and I just found it on the shelves of my local bookstore. And I was like, yes, female horror author on the shelves. Awesome. I want this. And then uh, the grim readers book club had, had chosen the hunger. And so, you know, I read it as part of the book club and everything and just, I, you know, and then when I saw the deep was coming out, it's all these really cool, really gripping uh, historical kind of, you know, tragedies that happen that are just, they're, they're interesting. They're hard to look away from. And so it's really cool to get the research behind that, but then also get what I feel like is so commonly missing, which is the human element of it. So I just think this is just like just a brilliant kind of setup you've got going on with these. And and I mean, the Titanic is just yeah. So so I'm just really, really been loving getting into the deep. Oh, well, thank you so much. You know, it's interesting you say that. I think I mean, that's how I feel about it as I go into them, you know, so the Donner Party, you know, most Americans have heard something about the Donner Party. But what I found after I wrote the book and started talking to readers is that people don't know the story really well. I certainly didn't know the story really well until I started doing the research. And that's when you really start to, you know, understand the people who were involved and, you know, make that connection, right? That becomes so real to you. And it was the same thing for the Titanic with me. I was not one of those people that was a huge Titanic fan. I kind of stumbled into this story when I first heard about the Britannic, I didn't know there was a sister ship to the Titanic. And I was amazed that it also sank. You know, it's like finding out your neighbors, you know, like two had two siblings who both died in similar mysterious circumstances or something. It's just, you know, it just hooks you right from there. But then once I started doing the research and really found out more about the people who were on the ship, the crew and the passengers and stuff. And again, it just, you know, it really does become very real to you and, and very personal. Yeah. And one of the things that I liked about, I just started the deep yesterday. I'm in like the first hundred pages or so, but I love the hunger. And I think like historical horror is kind of like an underappreciated subgenre, and it's one of my favorites. Um, not many people know this, but I was studying to be a history teacher when I started college, so I've always had a soft spot for that subgenre. And I was curious, you know, what kind of led you to be interested in, you know, kind of weaving real historical events with horror. You know, if, if someone had told me 30 years ago or something that I'd end up writing this, I would have, you know, laughed at them. But as I came back into writing, because, you know, I started when I was very young and then, you know, you get sidetracked with another job. In this case, it was in the intelligence community and they don't like you to do anything on the outside world. So I kind of had to give it up. And uh, but I came back to it later in life and I just found that I was drawn to you know, stories that had this unexplained, you know, very existential in a way, like what is there, what is life really about? Is there more to life? Is there unseen things that we don't see? And I've, I've often blamed the fact that I was raised Roman Catholic for that because it's predisposes you to believe in all that stuff. And, um, and now I'm all grown up and, you know, I, I, I work in technology and, and, 
research and that sort of thing. So, you know, you kind of have that beaten out of you, but I'm still drawn to them in stories. And history, I mean, history is just such a part for all of us, even if, if we didn't really think we were that interested in history, it just draws us, you know, that's the story of us, right? So it just keeps drawing us back in. What made you decide not to become a history teacher? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> Funny story, because uh, this is one thing I tell people when they're talking about going to college is you're really young, so you're not really thinking necessarily about, you know, what you're going to do down the line. And I was doing like music reviews on the side. So I was like, oh, I'll switch to journalism because I want to be a music oh. reviewer. <laughs> and that didn't quite pan out. I worked for a small local paper. Um, now I'm kind of in IT, but I still uh -huh. use the journalism stuff, you know, with what we do with Hank Heist and all that. Well, that's great. You're able to, you know, still keep your passion. I, I actually yeah. stopped from like 25 to 40 and at 40 I got really sick um, to the point where I they weren't sure I was going to be able to continue working and it was a neurological problem so I couldn't like really watch TV I couldn't use a computer so I started writing in longhand writing fiction even though I hadn't done it for 15 years and it just brought me so much pleasure now it was really bad and I realized <laughs> how bad it was. And if I, I told myself if I got better, then I'd commit and really learn, you know, try to learn how to how to write a novel. And um, it took ten years for me to write a, a story that was saleable, but um, that was the taker. My first book, you know. Yeah, and that that's kind of interesting because a lot of people have uh, like different paths to publishing, and you know, I know before I really got involved with this community, you kind of see these books come out that have like a lot of buzz and stuff, and you you think that like you know it was kind of like an overnight thing, like there's a lot of you know writers in the genre now where people are like, oh, you're an overnight success, but those people have written for years and years and might have you know, novels and novels stored up. So I always find it interesting kind of hearing how some of the writers we all love, like how they got to the point that they're at now. I don't, I really question if there's really anyone as an overnight success. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, in any <laughs> endeavor, particularly writing, because um, most people, you know, we just don't talk about the years and years of struggle or we discount them or something. I, those 10 years, I worked really hard when I we got the neurological condition under control. I went back to grad school. I mean, I I hit it hard. I, I wrote every day for 10 years and you don't ever really believe you're going to get published. <laughs> and then you get published and you realize that that is just the beginning. It's not the end of the marathon. <laughs> and then you say, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I recently submitted work just because I've never gotten a rejection and I wanted one to get I wanted to get that out of the way. <laughs> did you get rejected or did you? That'd be really funny if you didn't. <laughs> I, I got rejected in half the time I expected to. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but at least yours was a pleasant one. It was a friendly one, yes. <laughs> you know, and that's the other thing, too, that I find just so crazy. And I certainly was this way when I was younger. 
not so much by the time I got back into it because I'd gotten beaten up pretty much in my regular job. But, um, you know, and when you start out, you don't realize that it is a life of rejection. Even after you're a quote unquote success, you still get rejected 90 percent of the time. And so people who go into it thinking, oh, well, once I make my first big sale, it's smooth sailing. You know, anything I write will be published after that. <laughs> ha 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 ha. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yes. that's really that's really true. And it's I mean, and you don't want to like crush people's dreams. But on the other hand, I'm like, no, 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 no. This way you're prepared and you don't crush your own dreams. You know, this way you you settle in for the long haul, you know, and you don't turn away as soon as you get your first disappointment. I hope that's how it works. I really do. I um was doing an event the other day with the debut author and her book was wasn't going to come out till July. And then with the coronavirus, they ended up pushing her launch out to November. And um, I mean, I remember when with my first book, God, I was horrible at speaking events and things like that. And she was so good and so polished. And afterwards, she said, oh, I was such a wreck. I was terrible. And I'm thinking maybe now, you know, young authors, aspiring authors are better prepared than they were in my day. I mean, it's, you know, we still weren't doing all that much, um, you know, on the web as much as you can do now, for instance. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that people are better prepared to deal with the rejection and really have better coping mechanisms and a better network of writers to help advise them and that sort of thing. It seems like I didn't get a lot of that until after my book launched. And that's a terrible to have to learn in public like that. It's just horrible. But that's uh, not uncommon. That's kind of what I've done because I'm 55. I didn't start writing again. I stopped after college and started again about five years ago. Um, and that's where I've done all my learning is basically on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think when you're older, you've had these other, you know, you, you've learned through another profession. You know, that, that's kind of like I really learned in my other job how hard it is to, to really be successful. I mean, like in mastering the craft of your other job, right? And so then you realize you have to be patient, you have to, you know, take rejection, you have to take criticism. But when you're 20, I don't know, maybe colleges prepare kids differently these days. But when I was 20, I didn't realize the extent to which I would be rejected. <laughs> no, I didn't either, and it, and it didn't feel good then. <laughs> Well, I think what you say too, like the, you know, just over time, just gaining experience of having dealt with other disappointments or other frustrations that you had to deal with, you know, in your day job or, or with, you know, family or health or anything that you don't have a chance to turn away from, you know, that you really just have to grit your teeth and say, okay, I got to get through this. Cause it's, I know I, I work with uh, litigators now I'm a, I'm a paralegal. And if I had gotten that job when I was 20, I would have just collapsed and died the first time I was asked to walk into a room full of litigators and interrupt a meeting, you know, to give them a phone call. It have been like, no, I can't do that. No, that's terrible. You know, and it's by the time I was in my 30s, I was like, hey, guys, there's a call. Move. You know, <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, for your job, I think you learn to grin and bear things, right? Because you need that paycheck. 
But with writing, you, you know, you're not in a position where you're getting paid until you finish it. And so it has to be totally self-motivation. And, and that's a tough thing for a lot of people. I'm, I'm kind of a weirdo. I'm very, very, very stubborn. And, um, you know, I, I will just dig in. And also I tell people, you know, I had a career in intelligence. When you're an analyst intelligence, you have to have a very high threshold for boredom like tedium you just absorb it like a sponge because you have to go through like so much stuff to find the nuggets of information that you need so i can you know i i just can sit and not move for 15 hours whereas that would be you know just really horrible to most people <laughs> perfect for writing <laughs> oh yeah uh, yeah that would drive me out of my mind i couldn't <laughs> I, I can't even just sitting here in my chair while I'm writing something on me is moving. Yeah. <laughs> well, you are really dedicated. You are really. We have to have an awkward silence once every, every uh, podcast here. That's, that's fine. I mean, part of the issue is you can't really see each other. So, you know, you, you don't have those nonverbal cues. Yeah, this is true, and we are we are really good at tripping over each other. Even even <laughs> just in text conversations, we're good at that. So. Well, yeah, well practiced. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say that's the biggest reason for the silence is because sometimes we'll all start talking at once. Like, uh, 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 uh. no, you go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, far, a farce of uh, Chip and Dale. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know um, I was really interested because I think we asked you uh, when you were doing the Grim Readers, we we asked you some questions about your uh, process, your research process and the hunger. So I was interested to how that compared with uh, the work that you've done for the deep um, in particular, at what point or, you know, how you started, whether you started with characters and or, you know, your your possible supernatural element or did you let the research guide you? So I learned a lot from the hunger, maybe not so much in straight out in terms of the research, but just how to make the whole process a little bit more streamlined. I don't know if I mentioned it at the time, but, you know, there was a lot of revisions for the hunger and easily 200 pages that ended up getting cut from the book. And then, you know, several rounds of revisions where, you know, major elements of the story had to change. So I really tried to learn from that experience. Um, and as I set out to do the deep, so I wanted to make very clear up front, like what the thematic issues were going to be for the book and um, how to handle the supernatural element, because that's something that actually changed in the hunger. And I like having this sort of not super spelled out supernatural element where you you try to give the reader um, bits so that they can try to form their own idea about what's really happening and and is it supernatural and if it's supernatural you know how is that working so um, so I didn't have to change my research process too much and it did make the writing a little easier um, it wasn't revised as heavily as the hunger had been, but you know, you've read the book. So, you know, there's like a lot of moving parts in them. You know, it's a big ensemble cast. So there are a lot of subplots going on and um, you know, just 
kind of weaving those all together just right is a lot of trial and error. But my research process is still pretty much the same. I, I was a little nervous about undertaking the Titanic just because, you know, it's bigger in so many ways than like, say, the Donner Party, for instance, you know, there's about 100 people in the wagon party. There were 2300 people, crew and passengers on the ship. So everything was like an order of magnitude bigger. Plus, you know, people had heard of the Donner Party. You can't say there's a lot of Donner Party fans out there, but there's legions of people who love the Titanic. And I knew they'd be out after me, um, you know, if I got things too wrong. So, you know, that was a little nerve wracking. But I thought, what the heck? I'll go ahead and take the plunge. And the research actually wasn't any more difficult than than the Donner Party, maybe because I really knew I knew horses, but I didn't know a lot about uh, being a pioneer. And I really had a lot to learn with that, um, you know, but I'd seen Titanic movies. I knew the Edwardian era a little bit. So it wasn't quite the uphill slog in terms of research. <laughs> I'm the I'm the guy sitting in the back going, go Donner Party. <laughs> I'm kind of. I've read just about every book on the subject. I love that subject. Wow, wow. Well, you know, it really does grow on you. I mean, I wish I could write another book set in the Old West. Um, yeah, and do it in such a way as to make it feel like a modern work, like you did. Well, thank you. And I think there's a lot about that period of American history that it would be nice. To, to try to popularize a little bit more for Americans. I mean, I grew up in the era when Westerns, you know, ruled television. I find it hard to believe it's just like so remote and, um, you know, to most Americans, they just don't really think about it at all. Yeah, I grew up on the same sort of stuff. And that's all my dad ever watched pretty much when he wasn't watching boxing on Saturdays. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> and Rat Patrol. Did you watch Rat Patrol? Yes. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, you guys, we're just showing you how fucking old we are right now. <laughs> hey, I've, I've watched The Virginian. Okay. There you I can go. throw in here. <laughs> that and Lonesome Dove. I have, I have always been a horror fan. Always much preferred horror. But Lonesome Dove, first of all, just one of the, just the best written books I've ever read and also has some of the most utterly horrifying scenes I've read in anything. So, yeah, I mean, that can definitely compete in some ways. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have uh, too much experience with like traditional Westerns. And I know they've talked about like in publishing and even kind of with movies that, you know, there's still a dedicated market for it. But you know, there's not many new writers going into that field, but there's a lot of really cool, like, new Western movies that Shane actually pointed me towards, like Bone Tomahawk. And there's a couple other ones that their names are escaping me, but they were all excellent movies. So, like, it's kind of been cool to see, like, there's been not, like, a huge resurgence, but there's been more and more, like, weird Westerns coming out. And I think one of the first ones that I read was The Hunger, and then there's you know been kind of like more after that yeah i was really excited when unbarry carol came out i had yes. was around oh, yeah around time too and i was thinking wow we should just like do a double header somewhere but it, it didn't work out at the time and it did not like kick off this wave of you know love of westerns unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> there's still time <laughs> 
you never know. You never know what's going to hit. I kind of thought when um, S. Craig Zoller, who's the guy who wrote Bone Tomahawk, um, when his novels started coming out, and they're so incredibly um, different than most Western novels and so incredibly well-written, I thought for sure that that was going to see some sort of an upsurge in that genre, but it didn't really. You know, that's one thing I've learned. It's really tough to break out, you know. And I know that probably sounds stupid. Of course it's going to be tough to break out. But if we weren't optimists, we probably would not get into this business at all. um, (laughs) But it's it's really tough. You know, there's a lot of great books that, you know, don't find the audience they deserve. And, um, you know, don't, don't make that crossover. And it's disappointing. Yeah, it it's uh, part of part of the game, and if you don't want that in your life, then choose a different game. <laughs> you know, and I do wonder though. I mean, you know, I tell people, you know, the general public, especially if they don't read very much, they just assume that once you get published, that's it. You know, your ticket's punched, and anything you write for the rest of your life, you know, you'll find a publisher for. And I say, no, you just have that perception because the ones who've made it are the ones who who remain. But, you know, after a couple books, if you don't sell out, if you don't earn out, you know, it's hard to get a publishing contract. And yeah, so, most of, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, and, you know, but I can see, too, it's it's hard to keep having that heart for the struggle because um, writing is lovely. Editing is less lovely. <laughs> and then trying to sell a book is murderous. That, you know, you could you could really, it can break your heart before too long. Yeah, definitely. And it's not a get-rich-quick uh, scheme by any means. Um, the vast majority of us live on poet salaries out here, which yeah. is to say we do something else. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very lucky, but I did work a full-time job almost all of my writing career. I just managed to retire from the government a couple of years ago, which makes it easier, but I still work part-time as a consultant. Oh man, I can't imagine. Seems like you'd already be busy as hell. Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we are. Oh, yeah. Uh, ha- apropos of nothing whatsoever, I thought those cookies were freaking love it. Really Shane, Shane's been talking about those cookies for months. Oh, well, I have them all frozen in my basement in the freezer. If you want some, ship them out to dry ice. So how that happened, you know, like the, a couple months before the book was going to come out, I saw that this was like getting to be a popular thing. These photo cover you know they they do like a photographic icing of your cover and i was seeing people giving them away at at book launches so i was talking to a friend of mine who also retired recently and she was starting a cookie baking business and i said i'll hire you to make cookies for my my uh the book launch and so we we she made like 80 of the cover ones and then a bunch of accent cookies and they're really lovely and i came back i had been called back from my tour because of the quarantine and the first thing i did was drive out and pick up the cookies from her house <laughs> <laughs> just pack them up and put them in the freezer and my husband ate one so we've 99 cookies 
that's that's the problem with uh, bad timing is you don't know it's bad timing until it's already a done deal. At least, you know, if we can't get any other food, we'll have cookies to tide us over. For <laughs> cookies for the apocalypse. I hope you have liquor, too. That's, there's a short story in there. <laughs> well, I really liked, and I and I apologize because I'm not can't remember at the moment which publication it came out through, but your, your article that you wrote about, you know, launching during the pandemic and, and, you know, just seeing how many authors who are much, you know, I guess like we're more starting out and, and how much hope that gave them, like the number of people I saw retweet it, oh. you know, with these feelings of relief, I was like, you know, cause I mean, I know that killed you, you know, to, to have all that and have it just knocked out from under you, but to be able to turn that around to, and use that experience to just like lift the spirits of, of people who were also going, I just thought that was such a positive way to do that. Oh, well, thank you. That was through Chuck Wendig's, um, Terrible Minds blog. Oh, um, right. Okay, yeah. yeah, I had just gotten back and I subscribed to his blog. So, you know, he sends out emails whenever there's a new blog post. And he sent out an email and said that he was kind of low on his five things, you know, which is a, a regular feature that he does on it. And it's usually an author will say five things I learned in writing my last book. And I had just come back and I said, Chuck, how about if I do five things, you know, I learned from launching during a pandemic. Well, so the thing I do as a consultant is, um, I'm, you know, I'm in the tech emerging tech world and I, um, it's really a lot of lessons learned work. Um, it's looking at, um, a situation and talking about, you know, trying to be strategic and think ahead. And so like I advise the government and stuff like that. And so it just puts you in a lessons learned mindset. And so whenever something happens, I'm always thinking about lessons learned before the lesson's even over. <laughs> so now that I think about it, I, I, you know, I changed that article a little bit because that was written just when it was breaking. And I did feel like a lot of us were kind of like, oh, you know, here's this horrible thing. And we weren't thinking like recovering, like thinking, OK, well, how do I get ahead of this? How do I try to prepare? I mean, I saw my publishers weren't really you know, you're, you're in shock still at that stage. And I saw authors were in shock and publishers were in shock and booksellers were in shock. I think bookstores kind of rebounded faster. I, I mean, rebounded in terms of figuring out, okay, I'm in a bad place. I'd better make it better fast. And then the rest of us sort of followed behind, but I really felt bad for debut authors because it's bad enough when you're a debut, you have no flipping idea what's real. And then to be in that completely crazy environment where nobody knows what's up, um, you know, I I, ugh, I would have been reduced to tears easily. Yeah, um, we had uh, a debut author on recently, uh, Ann Pisarchik. I probably messed up his name, but uh, he did before Familiar Woods. And, yeah, he was kind of talking about that. And, you know, it is hard for a lot of people, you know, like you said, writers, booksellers and everything like that. But one thing that has been cool and that I've seen at least and maybe it's just like in the horror community, but hopefully it's a larger thing is, you know, a lot of people are still like supporting authors, whether it's, you know, contacting them to buy it directly. So it's been kind of cool to see that, like, you know, people rallying around, you know, every author really. 
Yeah, it's um, it it's, uh, it's certainly in the, I'm a, I see the horror community because that's what I get most of, like on um, mm-hmm. on Twitter, and to a, a lesser extent probably on Instagram. And the horror community is is just wonderful. I mean, people are just great. Um, when it comes to bookstores, it seems like it's a little less even, and I'm sure a lot of it has to just do on what the bookstore owner feels comfortable asking of its community. I know some bookstores are doing great and other ones are, if they haven't shuttered already, they're, they're talking about shuttering soon. I was um, talking to a friend of mine who owns one of the Indies here in the DC area. And um, you know, they rebounded very quickly. They figured out we've got to sell virtually. We've got to do door-to-door deliveries if necessary, curbside pickup. They were right out there, but I saw her the week after it, um, everything sort of changed and, and they were just exhausted. They were running themselves ragged. And I think a big part of that is just the new, right? Whenever we, we have to go and completely change our lives, even if it's not like physically more demanding, it's mentally more demanding. And now I think people maybe are hitting their strides a little bit I just heard that one of the big five was doing a marketing thing today, and they feel that um, adult readers have uh, have kind of recovered and are starting to be interested in adult fiction again. But you know that right after it, the first measurement they kind of took of the industry after coronavirus, adult trade sales dropped the most at 13%, just in like a couple weeks. And now they finally feel like it's sort of people can focus again. But that's actually a much huger drop than people realize it is when you're talking about all of the adult fiction out there versus the the 13 percent of it, you know, as far as sales go, just dropping off like that immediately. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I'm not a, a statistician, so maybe I'm not presenting. But like every author I've been talking to, we've all been the same. Like, yeah, oh my God, my sales are in the toilet. It sure feels like more than thirteen <laughs> percent. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure that's not evenly distributed either. So, right. <laughs> well, I thought one of the one of the biggest points that you made in there that was so you know helpful. I hope for some debut authors was that there will be another launch. You know, this is not your one ticket uh, to, to stardom, to freedom, to anything that's been yanked out from under you. You know, I mean, there will be other things. There's other opportunities. And, you know, going back to the earlier part of the conversation, it, you know, there was always going to be more work to be done anyway, you know, so uh, you, you know, it wasn't going to just be this one opportunity and it's over now. It's you can pick up the pieces in six months or, you know, whenever and and kind of work on it then. So I, I just think that's really encouraging because this, uh, you know, writing gives you so many opportunities to give up. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though, because even as I write that, I'm one of the worst defenders. I mean, I'm like, oh, my God, it's all over now. It's the end of the world. <laughs> It's hard not to feel that way at the time. And you never know. Like for my second book, which was the second book in a trilogy, I was with Simon Schuster at the time. And right as the trade paperback was coming out, they announced they went into that um, six month war with Amazon where they weren't they pulled all their titles off Amazon. This was several years back. So I don't remember it. Right. And at the time I said, "Okay." I mean, I said, I'm concerned about this. But um, 
are you going to remember this when the contract comes up for the next book? And how are you going to support the next book? And they were like, oh, yes, yes, of course we will. And then when everything got slashed, my third book, because my numbers weren't up, I said, yeah, but do you remember the six months? <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah, we, we remember that. No, no, you know, we're not going to take it into consideration. So, you know, I lived through that. So I am a little like once bitten, twice shy about what happens today, you know, might affect something down the road. But honestly, you can't control it anyway. So you just have to learn to let it go and deal with it at the time. Yeah. And that's, that is hard. And I think the big thing on it too, though, is to give yourself room to feel that, you know, <laughs> like when that happens to, you know, it's going to be normal to feel like that and nothing else that's going on negates that, you know, it doesn't make anyone who's dealing with that feel any better to know that awful things are happening elsewhere. So I think, you know, everybody give themselves some grace to just be really mad about that, you know, or really disappointed. Yeah. Really, really, we're all we're all human except for Stephen King. So it's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope he's okay. I mean, it's not like I stalk him or anything, but I, you know, I just haven't been seeing a lot of tweets from him, and the few that are are usually not book related at all. So. Yeah. Yeah. Not lately. It seems like. He's more about the politics and things than anything else. Yeah. Still a hell of a writer, but. Yeah. Still a writer. Just, you know, and it must be funny to have like a whole nation like watching everything you do. Right. (laughs) (laughs) If there was a Stephen King bathroom cam, people would watch it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, Yes, I I also think I should drink a little bit more and things would probably be much better. Because I I joke about it a lot, but I really rarely ever drink. But when I do, I remember thinking, you know, I should probably do this more. (laughs) Usually if I'm not joking a lot about drinking, it means I'm drinking a lot. (laughs) Uh, I think everything has just sort of gone off the rails at the moment. So just, you know, we I've got a two-year-old and I'm normally big on not doing television through the week. And I was kind of sticking to that. And then I sprained my ankle. It was like, so anyway, <laughs> back to Disney. because <laughs> Right. I just can't imagine like some people who are really um, control freaks and really tightly wound. This must be killing them. No, I'm sure <laughs> if you can't, uh, you know, kind of change with it. Cause yeah, it's just been, well, and, oh. and uh, so go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say all those people are banging on the doors of Capitol buildings all over the country right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are you guys able to get any creative writing done? That's um, what I was I, going to ask you, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Go ahead I, t- I took on a project right at the beginning of this thing that uh, has me writing whether I want to or not. So, yes, because like you say, stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Shane. Promote promote your project. Spread the word. Oh, this is about Alma, not about Shane. No, no. I'm <laughs> Well, no, she asked you. Uh, I'll do it. 
Okay, you do it, Laurel. <laughs> I, I hate doing that. <laughs> um, Josh Mailerman, I don't know if you've been able to read yeah. any of his, the, uh, the Carpenter's Farm. Have you been reading that at all? I started to, and then um, I have to get back to it. Yeah, so uh, since the beginning of it, Shane has been writing an accompanying poem for every chapter. And it's been really cool because it's um, it's really started, you know, feeding some of the chapters and, and the, you know, that feeds the poems. And it's it's just very um, sort of symbiotic and just really, really cool. And I'm, I'm the first to say I, I have a hard time with poetry because I'm incredibly literal minded and I just absolutely love these. And see, this is why I talk about it, Shane, because you're not allowed to say that apparently, but I can't. Uh, <laughs> well, this is very exciting. I mean, I think, that, you know, I have so much respect for Josh. He's such an artist. And to announce that he's going to do this, I told him it's like being a high wire act with no net, you know, and a lot of us would not do this just because we we don't have that artistic spirit, I think. But he yep. really throws himself into it. And so to be part of that, how exciting. It is. It's awesome. Um, I'm enjoying it a lot. And it's uh, teaching me a massive amount. You know, it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to get back into my writing. And, okay, I'm really going to get back into my wow. writing <laughs> on overdrive. And, you don't and have a choice anymore. You know. And Mailerman is fucking turbocharged. So, you know, he, he writes six chapters to my one poem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. He really, um, he's just like fired up with artistic energy like on everything. I can't believe it. And it's all great. You know, he follows his muse, you know, where most of us are a little more timid, you know, and I just admire that so much. Yeah, I think his muse tries to hide from him because he comes after it so aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've uh-huh. started using the speed of Mailerman as a as a uh, measurement. Of <laughs> wow! <laughs> I hope he doesn't burn himself out. Man, I don't know. But. He just seems, you know, limitless. I've listened to one of the nice things for me working from home has been that I can listen to podcasts while I'm working. And so I've been catching up on a whole bunch of them and, and listening to him on several of them. And he just has that same energy, it seems like, with everything he does. He's just he's just really excited. He's really just, you know, it, just getting into it with everything he does. Yeah. I'll have to ask him someday. Like, how was he able to, why does he think he's able to do that? Like, was there something about his development, his upbringing that formed his outlook that just makes him so, you know, fearless and hungry, right, to to just keep creating? Yeah, that's good. I would, I would love to know that, too. Would, will you come back on and interview Josh for <laughs> He wants to do it. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Well, have, how about you? Have you uh, been able to get much creative writing done or do no. you kind of take a break after after writing, after getting oh. the deep launch? As soon as I got stuck at home, I had an idea for a story and I start and it was it was quarantine related. Actually, I was trying to talk some other authors into doing an anthology and I was pretty sure we could sell it. And then I started writing it and I, I just stopped. I just wasn't that interested in it. And uh, I've been I was writing a fair amount of nonfiction for my other job. Um, and when I'm directed on the fiction, like I'm working on rewrites for a proposal and things like that, 
it's not so hard, but like completely creating a new story. I just am struggling with that. It's sad. It's, it's weirdly hard to find the focus. I feel like it's, you mean, I I feel like I should have all this time. Yeah. And I'm an introvert. So I'm just like, Oh, I should be able to just like, this should be. And yeah, I mean, half the time I go to open my computer, I'm like, I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I've seen things online about it where people uh, like memes or whatever, where people are like, oh, I'm going to get so much writing done. And then it was like, you know, fires up Netflix or, you know, whatever. But I think that's part of like the comfort thing, because like I write stuff, too, and I'm an extremely slow writer when it comes to stuff like that. And, you know, sometimes like, you know, you just I don't know what it is, but like you want to watch like you know, a movie or a TV show. And like, especially when you're, when you have all this free time or if you have that free time, you know, it's harder than when you like have that kind of, like, I only have this limited window, so I'm going to buckle down and do it. It's kind of like the reverse where you're like, well, I might have all of this time, so I can just do this later. You know, I mean, I give myself, I tell myself I have the excuse of the promotion So especially since everything is completely online now, you know, so much has moved that it is it is a lot. And whenever I have a book launch, you know, I stay on top of the social media pretty hard because you want to keep moving that conversation. I'm just at the point where I'll probably start weaning off that because it has been a month. But um, but yeah, between that and something about going through this quarantine Everything takes longer than I think it's going to. Yeah. are so busy. I, yeah, I don't know where the time goes. Have you guys found that too? I get stupid busy because I yeah. let myself get crushed up against deadline before I start working on anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that happened to me too with the uh, the grindhouse press deadline laurel was like oh it looks like they're closing a month early and i was about maybe halfway done <laughs> and i was like oh god i better buckle down and get this finished <laughs> like, i thought i had all this time well see you can you can work fast when you have to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i guess so you just don't want to have to depend on that that's scary yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I thought I had all of this time, so I didn't really feel like that urgency. But then when she told me they cut the submission window by like a month, I was like, I, I better, uh, I better get going. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel lazy compared to some of my peers. You know, they really seem to buckle down, and not only do they have novels on deadline, but they write short stories for anthologies, and they're working on a script, a spec script on the side, and this and that and the other thing. And I'm like. Man, I am such a slacker. I have got to get it together. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, it's, but I mean, I think we all just have different times when they're, when we're in the zone, you know, because you've got five novels launched, you know, so clearly you haven't been, haven't been slacking there. Uh... I just, you know, like I rarely write a short story and, and since the hunger, I've been so lucky, you know, I get more invitations to participate in anthologies. And a lot of times I turn them down because I'm just so afraid I won't be able to to give them a short story in time. So, you know, I see some of my peers and I think I should try to be more like them. My excuse is because I'm still consulting and it's just really hard for me to jump 
from one mindset to the other. I keep telling myself, and maybe this is a fairy tale, that if I could just work on fiction full time, that I'd, you know, get in a groove and I'd be more productive. But who knows? I think headspace is important, though. That's it's one of those things like I'm just really lucky right now that I do have a full time job, but it's one that I love. And, you know, I really just love my coworkers. I think my job is interesting. So it doesn't it's not like a like a headspace suck, you know, where I'm just worn out, you know, mentally by the time I go to work on something. But the job I had before this was just like wretched. You know, I mean, I was so toxic and and just hated going back to work and it just occupied my brain. And I didn't work on fiction for two straight years while I was there. So, I mean, you know, even if it's not something that you really dislike, I think if it's something that's mentally taxing, I think that that you could be right about that, that it's, you know, if it's hard to jump back and forth there, that it might just be, you know, especially with everything else going on right now, that might be the drain. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, it's a long story. I won't bore you with it. But I'm hoping maybe within a couple of years I can just phase all that out. Well, that would be awesome. That'd be awesome because I I don't know if you're, you know, and, and I won't ask you to to detail which ones you might be looking at. But is is this sort of a, a kind of I mean, this is like your it's sort of like your own subgenre you're you're building here. Um, do you are you looking at maybe continuing with that line? You know, if it's my own subgenre, we might need to get some more authors in there because <laughs> we're not generating enough in the market here. But um, well, yes, for a little while at least. It, um, we haven't signed the contract yet, but I think we're in agreement with Putnam for another two novels. So um, that's yep. great. And <laughs> let's hope. Yeah, the next one is going to be set in World War Two. I won't go into too much detail there. And and we actually have an idea for the next the one after that, but you know that's so far out it could certainly change because you know you you end up being influenced a little bit by trends at the time, you know like I love to do history from several hundred years ago, but right now that kind of stuff just really isn't selling in numbers that make publishers happy, so they they want more more contemporary stuff, which is why I decided to go with World War II. But the other thing is um, I sold a second series to them. So next year, it's not a historical horror that's coming out, but it's my first spy novel called Red Mm. Widow. And I have to say I'm very excited about it. I I think it's a really good book, and I'm hoping it it finds a good audience. It might be a little confusing to horror fans because um, it's going to be published under my name. So it's kind of hard to have two different, completely different lines like that under the same author's name. We'll see how it goes. Oh, that's exciting. I love that title too, Red Widow. That's great. Yeah, that is, that is pretty cool. And I know some, and I'm pretty excited about that, that you said that, because I kind of like, you know, crime, noir, spy stuff too. And like one, uh, one author that's kind of done something similar to that, under the same name as uh, Laird Barron with his uh, Isaiah Coleridge thing. So I think it's pretty cool. And um, I know you had said that I know like 
the hunger is kind of like the Donner Party and the Deep is like the Titanic. So these are all like straight historical like events or settings. Um, I was curious if you were ever interested in maybe writing something that kind of had to do with like folklore, like folk legends, kind of like, you know, a folk horror type thing. If that stuff interests you as well. Well, you know, it's I guess I might ask you to sort of give me some examples the horror elements in um, both of the books do kind of touch on folklore. It's just not super overt. So like in the hunger, there's some, there's just some like whispers of native American mythologies. And also, cause you know, the horror part of the horror theme of that is shapeshifters. So I tried to pull in a little bit of European shapeshifter myths such as werewolves as well as native american shapeshifter myths but it's very light and same thing with the deep you know where you know there's this kind of nod to sirens of the sea and selkies and the debisa or however you pronounce that i was talking to somebody else today i don't know how to pronounce it (laughs) 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 but you know the sea witch basically you know without it being super overt so do you have something in particular in mind i'm always looking for ideas (laughs) no no nothing in particular and you know i because i i'm still relatively i have seen those mentioned in the deep but i wasn't like too far in to see it but yeah now that you mention it about the hunger i do remember that i just meant as far as like if you ever we're gonna if you ever were interested in maybe like kind of toying with like that idea kind of something like you know the wicker man or you know that sort of feel to it yeah um you know probably like little threads come out but it's never super overt the fourth Mm -hmm. book in it which is the second book on the new contract while i i won't go into any detail it it would deal with russia if we keep the same topic and so that's kind of interesting i've been kind of looking around at russian folklore and seeing what things to to draw on there you know baba yaga ah that's so much fun but um (laughs) yeah yeah, but um, but we'll see. We'll see. If, again, anybody has any great ideas, they're more than welcome to tell me. It's it's a little tough because now I'm starting to get this reputation as being like the queen of disasters, right? So people. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, we just, we just, uh, I should we shut up. Huh? What? I was, oh, I was just going to say, what about the Dyatlov Pass incident? That's uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting, I gotta say. We just got our podcast episode. We always try and come up with, like, a cool uh, title. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's... There's disasters and there's disasters, and you hate to be the one to tell people when they make a suggestion. Well, that's just not horrible enough. Not enough people die. <laughs> the outcome wasn't big enough. You know? so how do we top Oh my God! So it it just gets challenging. Yeah, I'm I'm going back and reading Michael Crichton, <laughs> trying to figure out <laughs> the very next. <laughs> Oh, it's I, I love Michael Crichton, but reading some of his stuff, like, that's <laughs> a little bit dated. And he's going on for 20 pages about these new things called cell phones that yeah. right? You, know, <laughs> and you, can, you can store contacts. And then I'm like, oh, OK, flip, 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 flip. <laughs> you know, but. Yeah, yeah, they are. They can be a little dated. That's true. 
Yeah. That, well, and you know, it, it occurs to me because the Andromeda strain was such a, I feel like it was such an interesting concept and I was very excited for it, but I feel like it just made me think of it because, you know, when we were talking about like the adding the human elements to the disasters that you've written about, I feel like that was hugely missing for the Andromeda strain. I feel like there was just, I don't know if you've read that. Um, no, unfortunately, but you know, one thing I do notice is, um, you know, like I'm a big Westworld fan, for instance. And I think that was a Michael Creighton book too, based on the Michael Creighton book. And it's, you know, it does seem that when you're trying to do slightly futuristic stories, that a lot of times the first take isn't going to fully investigate it. You know, it's a great idea and you got to give the person credit for coming up with the idea. But it seems like it takes maybe a couple iterations and then people really make tapestries of it, you know, and and often it can end up being quite masterful. That's a really good point. Yeah, because there's. I know um, uh, Lillian of, of Sci-Fi and Scary has done some, like, she actually took, I think, some courses on, like, writing in, you know, for sci-fi. And some of it just had the world building that's involved with that is just intense, you know, because it's like languages, it's, you know, cultures, it's the technology. So that's, yeah, that's a good point. That would be really hard to nail down all in one one initial novel. Yeah. And and also just seeing all the possibilities, you know, you can introduce this thing of wonder, but, you know, not everybody has the ability to sort of see it to its end. And that's part of the fun part of um, the editing process. As much as I, I don't care for editing that much, but I'm always amazed at how other people can see more things than you can as the creator in your story. And then the job for the writer is, you know, to take the stuff that's going to really enhance your story and ignore the stuff that would lead you down the wrong path. But, you know, that's a lot of times when I feel like my books really become so much better than what I originally envisioned. Um, Yeah, if it wasn't for Laurel to tell me my work sucks, I wouldn't get any I wouldn't make it any better than it is. I have never once said that. <laughs> Most of my stuff has has her touch on it somewhere, though. So <laughs> it sounds like a good partnership, then. She's an invaluably honest beta reader. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, we all need them. I um, my current editor Sally Kim at Putnam is just amazing. I'm, I just, you know, to me, editing is like the magic part. Like, how do you take this thing? and be able to see exactly how to reach in precisely and make the change that's suddenly going to make it all amazing, you know, and I, I'm still hoping to develop that eye might so I can do it for myself instead of having some <laughs> <laughs> I, I do wonder whether that's anything that anybody would ever be able to do without uh, input from anyone else, because it, you know, it's one of those things I feel like you get better at over time, like maybe filling in logic holes and things like that. Yeah. But it's so, you know, it's so hard. You're so close to your own work. Um, I just, yeah, I wonder that's, that's interesting because yeah, I think a good beta reader is just worth their weight in gold, even if they hurt your feelings terribly the first round. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember hearing early on, you know, there's writers and there's editors, like they're just separate roles that, that you do, you can do fairly well. And when I was coming up as an analyst, you know, you always have layers of reviewers over you, basically editors. 
And but they kind of feel differently. Like if you're a good analyst, you're a good writer, then eventually you get kicked upstairs to be an editor, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't work that way. And so you end up having really a lot of people in editorial positions that are not good editors. <laughs> and um, you know, they can give you their opinion, but it's not always right. Whereas what I found on the publishing side is a good editor is, is not that. A good editor knows how to enhance a piece and I've tried to tell that back to the people in the intelligence community. Of course, they don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I, I just got uh, one, one of my attorneys that I work for. He's an intellectual property attorney, and he's utterly hilarious. And he likes to just when he writes my reviews every year, he likes to just sort of just have fun, you know, and play with them and just say the most ridiculous things he can. But one of the things that he pointed out, a big part of what I do a lot, because a lot of law is writing mm -hmm. and I proofread for like everyone in the firm and, you know, I mark it up with red pen and everything. And he, he mentioned, he said, you know, something interesting about Laurel is that she writes novels on the side and she, you know, proof. And it's, it was just something that he pointed out that he felt like that was a big asset. I'm not sure how that applies exactly to patent applications, but apparently, <laughs> <laughs> you can't apply it on a technical side. <laughs> well, you know, I give them credit for recognizing that a skill doesn't have to be a directly applicable skill to actually enhance your ability. Because I would get the other thing from my colleagues all the time. Well, you write, but you write fiction. Like, much uh, less. I'm like, right. I think very broadly about writing. You know, for a fact, and you know, it's it's a lot of extra things, dialogue and setting that we don't have in our things. But it's still like basically argumentation and how to cleverly construct an argument. Uh, a lot of times with a lot of um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, deflection. What what is it that magicians do? Um, misdirection. Misdirection, right? Yeah, yes. Right. As opposed to nonfiction, which tends to be more straightforward and and you know not have that. Um, involved and that makes you a better writer than if you can only do one kind of writing and also you know i would tell them i deal with the professional publishing industry i know what real editors do. <laughs> well now you know why i'm retired <laughs> i know what real editors look like and you ain't one <laughs> I hear that derision too when you say, "Oh, you write fiction." So. Oh my God, the things they would say to me, and I would just like look at them, like you would, you would be so lucky if you could even sell a story to a magazine, and you have the nerve. To <laughs> have no idea. No idea. Not a clue. So uh, which which Westworld is your favorite, Alma? Well, I really do love the TV series, although I have to say I loved the first season. For all of the eye candy of the second season, I loved it a little less. And I'm watching the third season, but I'm I'm loving it even a little less still. That's that's pretty much my take, too. I really yeah. love the first season, and then it kind of gets less and less as it goes. Yeah, I mean, I give them credit for trying different things, but I you get the feeling that maybe they're not sure where it's going. And... Yeah. 
But I credit the first Westworld with being the very first film to ever scare the hell out of me. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it did bad. <laughs> I had nights. Like, I could watch Salem's Lot and it didn't bother me. Westworld would make me lose sleep. Wow. You know, I was not the kind of kid that scared easily. And I'm not. It's, yeah, it's, which is bad, right? Because I, I don't enjoy, like, that the jump scare and stuff like that. Uh, that stuff rolls right over me, too, now. I didn't used to, but the things <laughs> yeah. that have always scared me have always been weird things that everybody look at you and go, yeah, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I need an example now. <laughs> um, well, like... I'm terrified of heights if they're man-made, but I'm not terrified. I'm not afraid of heights at all if it's a natural structure. Hmm. You know why that is? Is there any uh, explanation? Yeah, because I, I guess I trust nature more than humans. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, and and the things that nature builds stand for millions of years. <laughs> right. And if they if they dissolve under your feet or something, I guess you could. You know, you'd be comforted by the fact that it was an act of God. Uh, yeah, it has to be destiny at that point in time. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, look, that's Shane. We'll show you what luck of the Irish doesn't look like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That just made me think, because I, I was reading the scene earlier with... Um, Annie, where she's uh, she's thinking about the the green ribbon, um, sort of like yes. you know the the sort of folk, folklore story, and I thought that was such a cool little element to include because um, I don't know if you did you read Carmen Maria uh, Mikado, the husband stitch the the first yes. story of that, that yeah that inspiration for it actually me and my editor were had both read it about the same time and we were just enthralled by it. And it made us remember that's that's the the is it Blackbeard's wife story? Um, I mean the original that it came from was about uh, anyway it's an old horror story or something. And we weren't we talked about how can you know what is that story really about? What's the message there? <laughs> I thought that was yeah. I thought that was interesting for Annie to think about that. It's it's one of those things again too. Like I'm I'm only just starting to now really. And try and consider, you know, and see what the meaning is behind some of these stories and these legends. And I thought that was such a cool thing for her to be thinking about. And in particular, in a in a in a feminist way of thinking, it's like, hey, wait a second. What are, what are we saying? here? One of the things that I identified for the book early on, because it was so, you know, one of the two big societal uh, issues of the day was women's suffrage and women's rights. It was right before they got the vote, both in England and America, well, a little while later for America. And, you know, being a woman, I could see where, you know, what a a terrible way it was to live, right, at that time, to always be less than a full person in the eyes of society, to have all your rights, you know, impinged on or, or non-existent. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why the book is the way it is. You have so many female characters, but whether they're a poor Irish maid like Annie or Madeline Astor, wife of J.J. Astor, the richest man in America, you see all of them are sort of constrained by the limitations that society places on women. And so 
you know, getting back to that story, me and the editor talking about um, the Green Ribbon story and, and saying, you know, this is the message that women got most of their lives. I mean, I'm older, so even though I consider myself, I was a feminist at like 13, um, growing up, you were just, it was just assumed that you were the second class citizen, right? You were always going to be the handmaiden. You were only good for certain things. You know, your husband tells you, you know, not to take that ribbon off. God damn it. You're not going to take that ribbon off. (laughs) (laughs) Really, though, it's really horrifying what women have gone through, even in our lifetimes. Um, Not I grew up in a household full of women, so there wasn't a lot of disrespect for women in our house because you would die. But. (laughs) But I watched it all around me, you know, but that our age we lived through those times and i just it's like i think about that and i can't imagine treating a woman that way because it scares the hell out of me the thought of being treated the way that women have been treated i'm glad to hear that i'm I'm, you know i'm five years older than you i grew up in a household of a lot of women and there wasn't a lot of respect for women (laughs) and remember you know just bearing this attitude from every boy your age, you know, other men. I remember the first time I went to look at cars, I had my driver's license. I was already in college. I was, I decided I was going to commute and I wanted to go look at these cars. So I went with my mother who's Japanese, you know, she's obviously, um, you know, not Caucasian and having sales men come up to me and say, well, you know, we'll show you a car when you come back with your father. Oh my God! I don't know. I don't, can you imagine that in this day and age? Or did you at all? Or I mean, and that's just one example. It's, it's um, thank God times have changed. But it's a, they did the same thing to my sister. She she went down to buy her first car with my mom, and they said to come back with her dad. So. Oh. <laughs> And my dad was a my dad was an irresponsible drunk who didn't have a driver's license because he got too many Deweys. <laughs> but we need his permission. Exactly. <laughs> well, one of one of the things too that I thought was really cool about the uh, the the husband stitch story that take on it was that the element of their of her coming across other women who had different colored ribbons in different places. You know, and them just sort of like acknowledging, oh, it's this frustrating part, you know, this this frustrating thing that I have to keep this tied or I'm going to my fingers going to fall off or, you know, my wrist or something. And I thought that was such an interesting uh, just, you know, just element of it, of this of this quietly acknowledged sisterhood of it, you know, which which I thought was cool. It was an amazing story, and, I'm, and and I apologize. I think my memory of it is not as good as yours, but um, I do remember just being sort of amazed by it. Um, it yeah, this sort of acknowledgement that that all women butt up against these limitations that come with just being a woman, and you know you can't get around it. You can't defeat it. Really, you just have to learn to make your peace with it. Um, yeah, I could go on on about this all day. <laughs> Because I'm old and I've worked primarily in fields that are male dominated, you know, defense, national security and and, uh, technology. And so I've had to deal with, you know, this kind of crazy chauvinism my whole career. And it's 
it's just, and you know, it's just about the limitations that get placed on you as an individual, even if you might be more competent or better worker or whatever. Um, yep. It's a sad way to have to live your life. It is, it is. And it's one of those things that, you know, I try not to, I always, (laughs) I get to be boring, I guess, about my job just because I love it. So I always talk it up all the time, but part of it has to do with the firm that I'm in, um, especially since we went through, you know, uh, kind of a, a split a few years ago and the, It used to be very like, I mean, the women partners were told like, well, you can have a family or have a career that's, you know, by men who had two children at home. And it's like, cool story, bro. You know, like what? Like, you know, and and I have it happens to be that that shifted very much when when these changes happened. And it's very, you know, it's just something where when I come into work every day, I work for a lot of men, but I we're just I don't know. I just never see that there. And it, you know, it's huge. It's like, it's, it's just very heartening. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. But I, I, I just thought that was cool that, that you included that story with the ribbon and, and, you know, just kind of all of that, uh, par- all, all the, the sort of interweaving stories with, yeah, like you said, you know, Annie's the, the poor Irish maid and, and Violet is as well. And then yet yeah, you've got women who are very rich, who are just as constrained. Yes. One of my favorite characters to write was Lady Duff Gordon, because in a lot of ways, she's like me. You know, there are limitations, but God damn it, she's just going to take the whole part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so as much as she can. We had more uh, scenes with from her point of view and a little bit fleshed out a character a little more. But, you know, for space constraints, we ended up cutting them which was disappointing to me. And people have told me how much they love the point of view chapter that's hers. Um, so it probably comes through that, that I identified. I actually struggle more with characters like Annie who are unsure of themselves and submissive and that sort of thing. I cannot fathom what they must feel like. <laughs> <She's> pretty hard. <laughs> I I love that. That's not something that I think we've come up against on this is like is but no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, to struggle with getting in the head of somebody like that, but knowing, you know, that that's a central character. Yeah. And and she was, you know, not crazy per se, but there was a question about her sanity and um I, no spoilers, I guess, so I can't really say what you find out at the very end of the book. And so to have to write all that mental uncertainty, but not so uncertain that readers would just give up on her. um, You know, it it was interesting writing her, but it did not come naturally at all. And it's realistic to take an Irish person and make them possibly crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a brother-in-law who's Irish. Uh, McGillicuddy, and um, so their kids have very Irish names, and one of them is Riona, and I forgot to tell my sister that I had used the name Riona in the book, and she told me afterwards, she said that, like, it it discombobulated her when she saw Uh, one of one of the cool things that I was talking to uh, Laurel and Shane about about the deep, and one of the things that I liked about it was the kind of dual timelines, like the 1912 parts, the 1916 parts, 
and kind of starting with the quote unquote present and um like we kind you kind of introduce the characters like almost like we already know them and then sort of go back and like dig up parts of their personality which i think is something that's like normally really tricky but it works really well in the deep because like right from the beginning they do have that familiarity so it was cool to kind of see that and then like uncover more like i'm still relatively early in but you know uncover more about them and i was wondering you know was that something that you knew you wanted to do or did it just kind of happen organically and was it difficult doing it kind of in that way? Well, I kind of knew it had to be done. So because of the frame device, you know, the nice yeah. frame. And so I knew it would be tricky. So it was just sort of always in the back of my mind as I was putting scenes together. But, you know, I was I was talking to a class today. Another writer had very kindly invited me to speak to his class. And somebody asked me a similar question. And, and what it is, is I've learned this. I can't really execute it well, but at least I learned this is what I'm supposed to do. When you write puzzle boxes, which is basically what this story is, and a lot of thrillers these days are puzzle boxes. What you do is you're supposed to think the whole thing out to the very end, so you know what the ending is, and then you write it backwards. <laughs> but I never can actually get to the end right, right? So, you know, so that, because I went, when I went to, ma I got my master's in writing, this was a long time ago, and they didn't teach genre fiction or commercial fiction at all. It was all literary. And literary is absolutely character-driven. You don't plot. It's all organic. You know, it's 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 the only thing that could have happened given these people. Right. And, you know, the people so well, you just wind them up and you just watch them go. And you're like writing down the story that that comes out of their lives. And that's still the way I want to write. And I think a lot of writers like to write that way. But when you have a really intricate puzzle, you, you can't do that. <laughs> you have yeah. to <laughs> So that you can reverse engineer the whole thing. Yeah, that's the secret. It's tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I, I like I've seen um other stories that like have tried to do that and it it just felt like weird, but like I was telling these guys, you know, it just it felt so natural. Oh, thank you. It's not natural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least it comes across that way. My very first book which I spent 10 years working on, like constantly working on. Um, it, I, and it had so many tricky things about it. That had a frame in it. It goes in and out of history. Ugh, it just really tough book. And why do we do that to ourselves for our first <laughs> I don't know. But I'd, I'd, keep, I'd, like I'd, I'd see something wasn't working and I didn't know how to solve it. So I'd put it away or I'd keep working on it until I could figure out that. And then I'd come up to the next part I couldn't solve. I finally got it to the part where I realized it was um, I could probably sell it. I still felt like it was missing something, but I just didn't know enough to know what that was. So I did, you know, like everybody, I submitted too early. So I had submitted over the years. But at this point, I knew, you know, I could probably sell the book. So I did get an agent and we did sell it. Um, but then he said to me, as we were working on getting it ready for submission, he said, um, so it's basically a love triangle, right? There's a, a woman, she's the main character. There's an idiot man 
the food that she falls in love with, which anybody else can see she's an idiot for falling in love with. And then there's the villain. <laughs> and he said, I always thought the villain was X, this other character in the book. It, it's supernatural, right? So so it, it, it was plausible. And he said, what do you think about changing it so that the villain is actually not what I thought the villain was, right? And I thought about it and I thought he's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I know and then I said to myself, Alma, this is why you have an agent. He is a lot more experienced than you. Maybe there's something there you're not seeing. So I thought about it over the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, I realized he was absolutely right. But what it required me to do was to rewrite the entire last third of the book and then pull these threads through the entire novel, these little hints. And and I think that is really the only way any of us ever write a book that truly surprises people. This has happened every time. I have had to change the ending and then thread <laughs> all the way through. That is how it happens. Doesn't happen going forward. It happens going backwards. <laughs> you uh, you end up surprising yourself with yeah. other yeah. people in the process. It's a lot of work, but man, I guess it works, huh? <laughs> Uh, very well. Very well in your case. Thank you. In my case, I never know where the hell I'm going. I'll, I'll tell you when I get there. <laughs> it's rough. It is rough. Yeah, we have, uh, a, we have kind of a constant back and forth on because sometimes I feel like the only outliner that I know. Because, <laughs> 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 but, but in large part, it's because, I, you know, I did that with my first god-awful, horrible novel that will never see the light of day. You know, I was just like, yes, let the characters tell the story. And those guys didn't know what they were talking about or where they were going. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it, in, you know, it was very long. It was sprawling. At the end, I wasn't entirely sure who the villain was. And I thought, this is, uh, this is not great. I think maybe next time I'll try and figure out who the villain is before I get to the end. <laughs> this is not the way to go. Early on, I was very lucky, and then I, I got to talk to Jeffrey Deaver, the mystery writer, and he he was addressing a bunch of us. It wasn't just me, but he had said, and I'd heard him say it since then, you know, when he decided he wanted to um, become a novelist, he was a lawyer at the time, and he realized he didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. So he <laughs> um, decided he was going to analyze a book that he really admired, really break it down, and figure out how it worked, and then he would write a book. And what he does is, for all his books, he does a very detailed outline. He says it'll be 60, 90 pages long. He says it's basically a book without dialogue. And that's the degree to which he outlines before he then actually writes the book. And hearing that was very, you know, took some of the shame of it out. (laughs) Took some (laughs) out of the shame for me of writing and uh, realizing that I had to outline books, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah that's very encouraging i like that and also again yeah working for lawyers a it makes sense that one would say dear god i want to get out of this and b <laughs> b it makes sense you know because again it's law is so much writing and so uh you know scott tarot is is one of the just best writers you know of that of that type of fiction and i think in large part it's because he had to write all these you know you have to make arguments for stuff you don't even remotely believe in. 
and you got you got to make it convincing. So I love that. That's great. I had, I had not heard that about Jeffrey Deaver. That's very cool. It's amazing how many writers were lawyers. A lot of them. Many, many. When I first meet them, we get to talking, and I find out, yeah, they're ex-lawyers. I when I was early. Uh, um, pitching my first book going around right before it came out, I had the good fortune to, um, to, to be at a, uh, I think it was for booksellers actually is like one of the regional bookseller events with, I want to say his name is William Landay. He wrote the book defending Jacob. And I guess he was a trial lawyer because I saw him go into another room and I saw him like practicing what he was going to say and it really opened my eye. I mean, like, just like a lawyer practices before they they go and make the presentation before the jury, like the hand gestures and everything. <laughs> and then I listened to his pitch and it was phenomenal. And I'm like, no wonder lawyers are really good. And that one was actually, I think, like a district district attorney in Massachusetts or something like that, Landay. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And that I was like, I am at a distinct disadvantage here, not being a lawyer. <laughs> I'm. Yeah. I'm. I'm horribly disadvantaged. I'm more closer to ex-con than ex-lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, you you don't have all the student loan of a JD, so you know, that's that's part of the benefit. You have yeah. your own set of skills. Your own. <laughs> attributes that you bring to the table. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> also, if it makes you feel any better, I, I have read read uh, briefs by a lot of lawyers who can't write for anything. So, you know, that's, <laughs> it's not a guarantee for sure. <laughs> Caveat, that's none of the people I work for. That's opposing counsel. <laughs> and if you want to know the names she mentions in private, I'll give you my number. <laughs> <laughs> It'll cost you, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, we've uh, we've kept you on for about an hour and a half here. I don't know if uh, is there anything else that you want to, uh, guys? Do you have any more questions or? Uh, no, other than um, I I think you I haven't heard anything about it, but uh, I know that the uh, hunger was optioned. Have you heard anything about that or? Uh, maybe any other projects you have in the works as far as books go? Well, besides the ones you told us about. Sorry. Yeah. No, that, I think that's about, that's plenty. Um, <laughs> short stories and, and um, other things, but it's a little more slow going. Um, yeah. We were super lucky with the hunger that was optioned by Ridley Scott um, it's a little bit in development hell right now, so I'm not exactly sure where that's going. Unfortunately, we have not placed the film rights to the deep. Um, you know, the feedback I'm getting is that it's it's always hard to sell a historical because it just costs so much more in production. And like right now, it's really tough to get anybody to sink that kind of money in it. But uh, wish me luck because the film rights for Red Widow, my spy novel, are about to go out on submission, and I'm really hopeful for this one because obviously it's a contemporary and uh, should be easy as hell to make. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome! Yeah, Definitely looking forward to that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, we just saw, they um, showed me the two covers that they liked a lot. And this never happens, right? Usually you just get the cover shoved down your throat. Oh, did I say that? I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> 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 we loved them both so much. We didn't know which one. So we thought, no, okay, let's show her both. And I did love both so much. They were both, they were very different from each other, but they were both great. And it was hard to make a decision, but they, they decided on, on which one, which I think is uh, probably more commercial. So it, it's only for the good. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, that was something too. The deep is just like, oh my God, that cover, yeah. that cover yeah, is I love just that beautiful. Well, thank you. I tell you, Instagrammers love it too. There's so many pictures of it out there. I'm just amazed. I'm trying to start this new thing though. Some of them have have started uh, going into the bathtub, lying in the bathtub, completely submerged and holding the book. Paper <laughs> taken. I'm trying to get more people to do that. So. <laughs> I'd just be afraid I'd drop it in. Yeah. <laughs> I would be afraid that asking people to get naked with my book would get me Actually, they're really fully dressed. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I was trying to, it's like, yeah, that is a cool trend, but how did you get that started? <laughs> I'm glad we had this conversation before Shane decided to join in. <laughs> Sorry. Well, a girl can hope. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, I just really, really appreciate you giving us your time for this. This has been just an absolute blast. Um, well, thank you. Thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. It has been an absolute yeah. class. I feel like we could go on for hours. Uh, absolutely. Just, Same here. Yeah. If my if my wife wouldn't kill me, then <laughs> you have to feed her sometimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We are uh, all three reading and very much uh, enjoying the deep. So that is heavily inkized endorsed for our listeners um, and uh yeah we would love to have you on again thank Absolutely. you I'll look forward yeah. to it. it's been delightful alma have a good night thank you yeah. too good night you guys mm -hmm. good, good night, night.